Real Talk starts now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, friends, welcome to a special edition. We'll call it a special broadcast event of Real Talk right now, coming to you live on our YouTube channel. I'm Ryan Jesperson with you. You know, we made you a guarantee when we launched this show, and that was that we were never going to spin pre-taped interviews as live. Instead, we realized we have the ability, we have the infrastructure, and we have the audience that allows us to go live anytime we please. And what that does, it allows us, among other things, to check in with newsmakers, experts, to check in with guests that are in wildly different time zones than us when our typical 8.30 a.m. mountain time start might not fit. Well, that's exactly the case here. As we go all the way over to Australia to take a look and how they're managing the COVID-19 pandemic halfway around the world. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the program an individual who I know in the province of Alberta will be a familiar face to many people. He served as the CEO of Alberta Health Services for a number of years, right up until 10 years ago, that cookie incident that I'm sure we'll talk about later in this interview. Dr. Stephen Duckett, now the director of the health program at Grattan Institute, which is a Melbourne, Australia-based think tank. He was an early advocate for pursuing an elimination target, and he was a co-author of an influential report titled Go for Zero, How Australia Can Get to Zero COVID-19 Cases. Dr. Stephen Duckett, a very good morning to you, and thank you so much for, I don't know if you're waking up early or if you're typically an early riser, but thanks for making time for us on Real Talk here in Edmonton, Alberta. Thanks, uh, Ryan. It's uh, eight o'clock in the morning, so it's not too early, actually. Well, there you go. Well, we're, we're delighted that you've agreed to join us. Uh, we take a look. I think that this makes sense to stack up our two countries of rev- residents right now. Relatively comparable population size. C- Canada w- with 37.5 million citizens, Australia with 25 million. Uh, but the numbers, the tail of the tape, quite a bit different. Uh, in Australia right now, you've seen a total of about 20. 28,000 cases of COVID-19. In Canada, we're closing in on a half a million. Australia has seen 908 citizens die due to COVID-19. In Canada, we've seen 13,627. Obviously, it's been a different reality in Australia than it has here in Canada. How did it all begin? Take us back to February, March of last year, or, or when the pandemic really touched down, so to speak, in Australia? So, uh, as you know, uh, the coronavirus originated in China. Uh, Australia has very close trade relationships with China, very close uh, uh, direct flights, including direct flights, flights from Wuhan. And uh, so that was when we started. Uh, So we saw the virus uh, emerging, there were early reports, and uh, we started to see uh, arrivals in Australia and really, really early internationally, we closed our borders to China uh, to slow the arrivals from China into Australia with the pandemic. Uh, nevertheless, we got uh, a first wave from international transmissions. We subsequently closed our borders to South Korea, subsequently 
uh, closed our borders to Iran. We were, we were too slow in closing our boards to, borders to other countries. Uh, there was a Grand Prix here and the Italian team came along with their Ferraris and uh, they brought the virus with them. Uh, we also had skiers in Aspen coming back, told to self-isolate, they didn't self-isolate, spread the virus uh, throughout Melbourne. So we, uh, we got international transmissions, uh, like all the other countries, of course, and uh, we had our first wave. Doctor, do you, I, I don't know how much attention you pay. I know you've got your hands full with your, with your current gig. Uh, I don't know if you've been paying much attention to, to the, the former uh, jurisdiction uh, with, that you oversaw as part of Alberta Health Services, but it's really interesting uh, to hear you say, you know, you talk about the, the, the Formula One team that came over, or you talk about the skiers that were in Aspen that, that didn't self-isolate or didn't quarantine. Um, in Alberta right now, I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but there's uh, a real, if you talk to health professionals, they'll tell you there's a real deficit when it comes to contact tracing. That's one of the areas where the experts will say, and I think in hindsight, we'll learn more that we've really dropped the ball. Was that an early priority in Australia or, or, or what was the reality and, and what's the current reality nine months, 10 months later with regards to contact tracing? So we're much, we're much better at contact tracing now. So uh, in the first wave, um, different states were at different stages of contact tracing. The state I live in, Victoria, was relatively poor, uh, badly prepared, uh, not good infrastructure for infectious disease contact tracing at all. Uh, other states were much, much better. So uh, New South Wales had a much better inf infrastructure. Queensland had a much better infrastructure. Uh, since then, um, contact tracing has dramatically improved and there's been changes uh, right across the country in, in the ways they, they contact trace. And so there's been learning from, from one state to another. And so we're much better now uh, than we were back then. And in the middle of the year, about August, uh, the Victorian contact tracing system was completely overwhelmed and they more or less, I won't say they gave up, but uh, they, they were, we were having 700 new cases a day and uh, that it was just too many for the for the system, even if it was working very, very well to to cope. In your paper, uh, Go For Zero, you write that COVID is a classic case. And and by the way, I should I should note to folks that you, you wrote this back in September of 2020. So a few months ago, but you wrote that COVID is a classic case of short term pain for long term gain. And the lament here uh, where I'm coming to you from is that Christmas is closed down, that the holiday season is closed down. And a lot of the, the blame, the angst, the criticism is being leveled at government officials, in particular the, the, the provincial government. People are saying if we would have locked down when healthcare professionals were sounding the alarm two months ago or, or six weeks ago, then everybody would be with their families around Christmas time. Now, of course, this infuses a lot of emotion into the debate as to whether or not or what measures sh should have been taken. But how would you describe the the citizenry, the general population in Australia and the perspectives that you've heard from people with regards to that buy-in, so to speak? So, Ryan, I don't want to gloat and rub it all into you, but uh, I had 14 people for dinner at my house last night. Wow. 14. And we cooked Atlantic salmon, as a matter of fact. But that's what we can do now. We have eliminated the virus from a uh, community transmission of the virus from Melbourne, where I live. There are still some cases in hotel quarantine, 
and that so we have arrivals into into Melbourne now and the people are isolated for for two weeks um, and, but for the rest of us uh, life is returning returning to normal I don't have to wear a mask outside anymore for example I can I'm, I'm not restricted in my movements anymore essentially um, I go to a restaurant and I they can't accommodate as many people as they used to because of density limits. And so we, we uh, had a, a lockdown that lasted 110 days here in Melbourne. Um, the government stuffed up the hotel quarantine program and virus got out into the community. And that was, um, you know, the community was essentially really angry about that. But they, then the government said, we are going to try and tackle this. We're going to get rid of this virus. And they did, and we lasted for 110 days, very strong community support. The Premier was in front of the media every day at 11 o'clock in the morning, telling how many cases that day, how many deaths that day. And there might've been a little snippet of news of some kind, but basically building support, building community support. You know, during that lockdown period, I was allowed outside for exercise one hour a day. Only one of us could go shopping. I could go to medical appointments, but more or less, I could go, and, but more or less everything else was closed, and take away delivery of meals and so on. So it was pretty tough lockdown, pretty long, 110 days. When the uh, the the targets were pretty clear, we had to be uh, there could be easing of some restrictions if the 14-day average got about got below a certain amount, and then when it got to zero basically major lifting of restrictions. And so everybody was actually focused on this number uh, when, we could, uh, when we could have, have more freedom. And the day the Premier announced the number was we could have lifting restrictions, you know, cars were tooting their horns, flashing their lights and, yeah. you know, just... What was that? What does it feel like for you, uh, Dr. Duckett? Uh, I was I was watching a movie the other day and, and my wife and I commented how jarring it was uh, to see people holding hands, people embracing, people gathering together. I, I do the same thing when I'll see old videos of, you know, Edmonton Oilers hockey games or something along those lines where it, it, it you kind of it, it takes you a second. It takes because we're so used to the distance and we're used to having hand sanitizer everywhere and, and, and we're still, you may have heard Alberta just got on board, uh, became the last province in Canada to, to introduce a, a mask uh, legislation across the province just a short time ago, uh, just last week. Um, what does it feel like? What does it do to you just as a, as a person, uh, not as a, as a healthcare professional or an executive to have 14 people in your house and no masks? Like how, what did that do to your spirit? Well, you know, it was, so it was, uh, I chair a board here of a, what's called a primary health network. And so I had the board and the executive over to my place for dinner, somewhat similar to what I did at Alberta Health Services, as a matter of fact. Anyway, so uh, some of them had not seen each other face-to-face -face at all. New starters had not seen each other face-to-face -face at all. And so they had no idea how tall people were. Because we only saw <laughs> we only saw each other from the middle up, and um, you know it, it was it's just quite amazing, you know, seeing someone for the first time in real life. Yeah, um, and you know it was just you know just a wonderful experience to meet again, or and for those of us who had 
met face to face. You know, it's been wild. We've we've heard from uh, members of our listening audience as we've been talking about. We you know we did some polling uh, uh, through our research and strategy partner Y Station on how people's holiday seasons will look different this year, and we were receiving comments from people that were saying, you know, one lady said, "I've been trying to do everything right." She says, "I have a six month old grandson. I've not held yet." You know, people were talking about how they can't wait to 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 smell you know their their mom's perfume again, or they can't wait to walk into the house and remember you know touch the things that remind them of their parents. I mean, people are are yearning for these types of things. People are longing for these types of things. Um, Doctor, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, I've just seen a report out of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences uh, that shows that it's unlikely that the first generation of COVID-19 vaccines rolled out in Australia coming up in, early in the new year will prevent viral transmission. And so they're talking about how it's important to make sure that you maintain high levels of testing, contact tracing, isolation and quarantine. Now, that doesn't sound like the reality where you're at, but but what's the deal there? So there are a couple of stories in, in, in that. First of all, 25 million people in Australia, uh, it's going to take, even if everybody desperately wanted to be vaccinated tomorrow, it's just going to take a long time to manufacture the vaccine and to roll it out across the whole country. So there's a, there's a logistic exercise, which will take a while to, to roll out. Some of the vaccines we know you've got to be cautious about people with asthma, for example. So, so you know, we're not going to get 100% of the people vaccinated on the 1st of March, for example. So it's going to be a, a slow process, even with the best management and logistics in the world. Secondly, uh, the, the vaccines don't have 100% efficacy, and so there's always going to be um, uh, risks associated with that. And, of course, we've got people who may not want to be vaccinated for some reason. So, you know, so getting to herd immunity may be a bit tricky. Uh, and so we're going to have to um, watch ourselves uh, and monitor carefully all the time. And that means um, we, we still have people coming into the country uh, we still have quarantine and there can be breaches of there will be breaches of quarantine. These are human systems and so things will go wrong. So we've got to have both passive monitoring through sewage monitoring. We've got to have uh, testing continuing. The, the rate of testing has declined a lot in Australia at the moment. It was up to in this state, which is roughly the same population Alberta, about 15,000 tests a day. It's now down to about 5,000 tests a day. So we've, we've, we've backslid a bit there. So we've, you know, we've got to um, keep our keep our vigilance. Did you say sewage monitoring? Mm, yeah, is that so what it sounds of, like? It is exactly what it sounds like. Probably not the best fun job in the world to have, sort <laughs> of like the CEO of the health services in many ways. But you 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 can monitor the whether people have coronavirus by what's in the sewage, and that's what we do, and that we've picked it up in a number of. Uh, rural communities uh, where there shouldn't have been any, uh, we picked it up, and we're 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 doing much more passive monitoring of that kind. Wow, that's fascinating stuff. Where 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 does the appetite lie among the the Australian people with regards to uh, existing or hypothetical legislation around a mandatory vaccination? It sounds to me like you're talking about people would would choose not to get it. So I suspect that's not yeah, the case. I, but I don't think the Australian public would go with a. Yeah. mandatory vaccination um 
basically my my line on this is that what we really should be worrying about is who's going to get vaccinated first not who's going to be get vaccinated last and so there's a there's going to be a long tail um of course in australia we love traveling and you won't be able to travel unless you're vaccinated you won't be able to fly even within australia unless you're vaccinated so you know there's going to be we have we have a number of uh, systems which encourage other sorts of vaccination and so I think there'll be um, a lot of pressure to vaccinate, but I don't think we'd ever have a, a legislation which says you can't go to work without vaccine, yeah. vaccination. Um, Some places may do that, but I don't think we'd have national legislation or state legislation on that. It's, it's hard to imagine a government anywhere, uh, at least in the free world, uh, legislating that type of thing. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine what the, what the, the pushback would look like. Um, but, you know, you, you've, you've heard some people talking about what, you know, you know, debating whether or not children should have to be vaccinated to attend public schools. Been some talk about airlines, what airlines might do. Um, let me ask you this. If nothing else, what this pandemic will have achieved, I think, is an awareness from the general public how important it is for governments and health authorities to have planning in place, to have protocols in place for these types of disasters. I've been so proud to host the Alberta Emergency Management Agency's uh, emergency summits, their annual summits for the past number of years. And it's been fascinating to see how they prepare for these types of things. I remember former President Barack Obama sort of snidely suggesting that the White House had developed pandemic protocol that he was well aware had been tossed in the garbage by number 45, uh, something that, that Donald Trump really had no use for. Um, you and, and your colleagues have been looking ahead at the Grattan Institute toward climate change and health. Uh, you, you've, you've titled your report Preparing for the Next Disaster. Now, I recognize we've only asked you for, for about six more minutes of your time, and to ask what climate change has to do with health would be a seminar's worth of discussion, but but what do you hone in on? What do you focus on, and what might be applicable to our audience here in Canada watching live right now as well? So we started that report after the Black Summer bushfires, what, what you call wildfires in Australia, which devastated the country. You, you know, we did an analysis of emergency department presentations, and you could see days of high smoke. People there were increases people attending emergency departments. And so the health, and we're going to have more bushfires, more intense bushfires, longer bushfires, more cyclones, more flooding. You know, climate change is real, and the health system has to change its way of thinking. So it's prepared for that. And so we have much better uh, awareness and planning for these increasing climate change events. And that's sort of what we talked about. And there has to be learning across the country. So you know, bright ideas from one place. We have different um, alert systems in one state versus another. And so if you're on the border, you can be told it's okay. And on the other side of the border, it's not. And so there are all sorts of things where we need some sort of harmonization. So there's a whole lot of work we need to be doing here uh, to address the, the consequences, in addition, of course, to trying to reduce the likelihood of climate events. Yeah. Um, hey, it goes to show I, I learn something new every day. And oftentimes, Dr. Duckett, I learn five or six new things every day. But Catherine Grakowski is watching this interview live. She's the Alberta legislative reporter for Alberta Today. And she says, you know, Ryan, she says the universities of Alberta and Calgary have actually both done research on sewage testing as well. And apparently MLA Lauren Dock suggested in the House that Alberta should be doing it more. So there you go. Uh, I had no idea. What how would you compare and contrast? Let me let me point out that you were 
you were last uh, CEO of Alberta Health Services about 10 years ago. So you've there, there have been a number of premiers and, and, and actually, as a matter of fact, three parties have held government uh, since then. So so it's a different reality right now. But generally speaking, did you notice any similarities or any differences to how health authorities maintain relationships with government bodies? Uh, what do you remember uh, of your experience in Alberta based on your experience now in Melbourne? Um, I guess uh, back then, uh, Alberta Health Services had a very close relationship with the ministry and with the minister, um, sometimes more fractious, sometimes less fractious. Uh, we had different roles, of course. Um, and But the same is true here. I mean, um, the, the ministry, what we call the Department of Health and Ministry, is very similar relationships. Um, I, uh, the health services, uh, the same, it's, it's exactly the same in many ways, um, just uh, the politics are somewhat different, of course. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this in closing. I, I couldn't believe uh, somebody put this uh, on, on my radar by way of Twitter a while ago and said, can you believe I think it was November 20th. They said, can you believe it's been 10 years since the infamous cookie incident? And I went 10 years. It's been a decade. I couldn't believe it uh, at the Matrix Hotel in downtown Edmonton. I'm pretty sure that that our, our viewers and listeners will know what we're talking about. But basically the case you had left what I would imagine was a somewhat of a stressful uh, closed door meeting about uh, an emergency care crisis uh, occurring in the province of Alberta, and you had faced as CEO of Alberta Health Services some criticism from a government health official, and of course, reporters uh, led by Laura Tupper of CTV. Boy, were they waiting for you just outside the door. And you, uh, if I recollect collect, uh, correctly, I remember that you said you had been instructed not to comment on it, or at least you weren't in the mood. Um, what do you remember about that day 10 years later? Yeah, I made a mistake. So, yeah, that's life. Um, as it turned out, there it is. Um, uh, I should have, I should have had a different way of saying no. Um, the, you know, as as you said, I was instructed by the premier's office not to make any comment whatsoever. Um, we'd organised for another colleague of mine to comment to the media, and I should have been a bit better at uh, telling the media I'm not going to comment. Yeah. So I made a mistake. You know That's what? Uh, yeah, it is life. Uh, I've made mistakes. I'm not sure if you heard, but something that I said g got me fired a few months ago. So here I am doing my own streaming show. So you and I have something in common, Doc. But it's kind of funny be here because Nikki is watching this live and she says uh, she works in public relations. And she says, you know what? She says we used that cookie incident as training uh, for what not to do when dealing with the media. But she says when compared to the current government, who at best are hostile to reporters, it seems quaint and harmless. So there you have it. The dust has officially settled, Dr. Duckett. That's good. Hey, we are so grateful that you made time to speak with us, kicking off your Wednesday morning uh, in beautiful Melbourne, Australia, wishing you the best of luck as you continue to... What's that? 26 today, the weather. Uh, oh, you know... I, you know, I scraped ice off my windshield this morning. How, how, you're winning, Doc. You're winning. Hey, thanks for making the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Pleasure, Ryan. There you go. That's Dr. Stephen Duckett. I love that. You know, he just goes, you know what? Ten years later, I made a mistake. I should have answered it differently. 
How refreshing is that? Stephen Duckett is the director of the health program at Grattan Institute, which is a think tank based out of Melbourne. If you'd like to read more about their climate change report, you can just visit them online at grattan.edu.au. And of course, we will pull the highlight clips from this interview and we'll use them in Wednesday morning's broadcast on Real Talk. That gets started, as you know, at 8.30 Mountain Time. Uh, We're also going to talk to Trudeau Lemons tomorrow. He's a law professor. We'll talk medical assistance in dying, that C7 bill in front of the Senate. Have a great rest of your afternoon. And thanks for tuning in live at ryanjesperson.com. The good.